Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about Singaporean food. If you'd like to see more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Devagi Samugam is a consultant chef, cookbook author, culinary instructor, and the host of a number of television cooking shows. Known as the Spice Queen of Singapore, Devagi has over 37 years of experience and 23 cookbooks to her name. Her upcoming cookbook is My Mother's Kitchen Pharmacy and focuses on Indian superfoods with recipes and home remedies. Hey Devagi, how are you? Hello. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I really, really appreciate it. I know you're so good. I know. It's a, it's a pleasure, actually. Actually, I was listening to your um, interview with um, Chef... Damien? Um, uh, yes. <laughs> and he was very good. I mean, he was very passionate and it was very nice to hear. I mean, like, can just carry on hearing. I just wanted to, like, carry on hearing, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, I also feel that way because, I mean, in interviews, right, people have to cut out excess stories or, like, excess um, words because they have, like, a word count or maybe it doesn't fit yeah. the angle of the story. So, I think podcasts mm. are really great when you want to really go in, go deep into what a person yeah. feels, their philosophy. Maybe we can start by talking a little bit about your childhood. So, what really influenced you to become the chef that you are today or the cook or the teacher that you are today? Okay, I think number one, I was exposed to food, uh, of course, definitely from my mother's um, cooking. And then um, during the school holidays, it was always my aunt. My aunt is actually my mother's eldest sister. And she lived in a quarters, as in like government quarters. Uh, and they had firewood stove. So that actually fascinated me a lot because in my house, we were cooking in gas and my grand and my auntie's place, it was firewood. And then some school holidays, uh, I would go to my grandmother's house. My grandmother's house is a very huge uh, bungalow, uh, but they have sublet it to many tenants. And then there, the subtenants sub will have a huge place where they have shared kitchen, like a community kitchen. Each of them has got their own, like a table space. And then they put their stove and they cook it. And all of them had kerosene stove. Mm. You know, the type that they will pump the kerosene and all that, the very traditional one. So that also fascinated me because um, there were smells coming up from all these various places because when you cook with kerosene and all that, there's a mixture of kerosene and curry smell coming in the air. When mm. you cook in firewood, right, then there's this smoke and curry. And then at home in my house, it was it's a very small kitchen. So when we enter the kitchen, it's just full of smell of the Indian tempering and curry leaves. So it sort of really fascinated me. And what actually made me want to become, um, well, in my younger days, I've never used the word chef. So at that period, it was the word cook. What I, what I wanted to be and why I wanted to be a cook is because um, I was very curious as to why my father kept scolding my mother at every meal because he's always, I mean, even to me, it was the best food. But for my father, it's like, I, this is lacking in salt. This is slightly burnt. You know, he's constantly uh, 
picking faults on her food. But actually, her food was very nice. It's just that he will not give compliments. Yeah, I think it's a very Asian thing. <laughs> yeah, he would never give compliments. And then I would just wonder why my mother don't tell him off or anything like that. But I was too young to do all that. But as the, as the years went by, uh, and I became very interested in food and I watched my mother, then I realized actually my father is scolding her and she deserves it because <laughs> she does not have consistency in keeping to her recipes. Yeah. So today she might do a fish curry and she will take uh, like a big lamb of tamarind and on another occasion she will just put a little bit of tamarind and then she thinks it's not sour enough and she squeezes some lime inside. And so my father definitely um, thinks that she has meddled with the, the way it's supposed to be. So he's closer. So then I realized that to, in order to be able to cook properly, you must have a consistent recipe and it has to be written down. Mm. So that's, that's how it all started, my interest about food, right? And I was always surrounded by food uh, when, I was a, when I was a child until six years old. We were tenants of a Pranakan family. Mm. And uh, it, the, the Pranakan culture, the Pranakan Chinese culture, actually stick on to me for many years because we all spoke Hokkien. We lived in a Chinese kampong. And my mom, my father, all of us could speak Hokkien because the Nonya, the, the lady of the house, um, she was um, speaking in Hokkien and Malay all the time. And then um, every festive occasions, we are part of the whole family because we are tenants in their house. So therefore, every Chinese New Year, we celebrate with them from making all the kueh to putting out red curtains in our house and all that and we were doing it even after we moved to our HDB flat for many many years because then as soon as Chinese New Year come my mother would sew us red colored dresses wow. you know and then we yeah so we we had that kind of a rub off <laughs> of the habit for many many years and so from that from that experience of seeing that a cultural difference in um, the Indian food and the Chinese food right even though for example uh, we would eat all the quiz but when they come and give us some pork dish, my mom will not eat because um, my mom and my father do not eat beef or they do not eat pork. So therefore, I wasn't allowed to eat as well. So there was a kind of a like barrier. You can't eat certain food, but you can eat certain food because uh, we are Indians, you know. And then when we moved to a HDB flat later when I was in my primary school, my block had different, my neighbors well, a mix of different, different type of um, job people, right? For example, I had three hawkers in the same block. So one was a quay, quay seller in the market. And every balanced quay around 11.30 in the morning, we were getting. Wow. So we indulge in quay, right? <laughs> and we, as, as children, we will pray that he will not finish selling the quay. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, and he makes the kueh in the house. So, he spends the whole afternoon, his wife and he spends the afternoon making like anku kueh and all that, right? In the house. And then they will, they will sort of grease it with oil so that it will stay um, uh, moist for them to sell the next morning. So, and then they had a charcoal stove where they would make same, like something like a kueh baulu, but I can't remember the name, but it was like a very big version of a, a kueh baulu made of... Uh, it's very eggy kind of cake. And they would also make that in the house. And all these were brought in the morning to the market, which is just on the opposite side of the road. We, we stayed in this area called um, um, Merpati Road, which is like uh, in Aljunate area. 
So they will bring it to the market and I will, I will definitely be going to the market because my mom and I, we go to the market as well. And then we will see them selling and then my eyes will like spot or oh, what other food that's not being sold today because later I'll be eating it, you know. So he was one vendor that um, I was so familiar with. The other vendor was a Malay family and they were selling nasi lemak in packets. So they had three sons, small young sons, as, as young as me at that time. It means I was like 12, 13, right? So these three boys did not go to school. And every day, the mother will just make nasi lemak, uh, wrap it in a banana leaf with the outer layer of newspaper, put it in a rattan basket, and these boys will carry it to every block, uh, every floor. They'll just shout, nasi lemak, you know, they'll shout. And people will just be in. But it used to be like 15 cents. And... Uh, the boys never went to school and every day they just spend, spend time at home uh, picking out the chili stalks, peeling the shallots and all that. And then the, the machi will just pound. She never had a blender. She never had a grinder. She will just pound and pound and pound chilies, you know. So her nasi lemak had chili sambal that had very coarse texture and very little sugar, unlike the nasi lemak that people eat these days with a lot of sugar in the sambal. And it was very, very nice. And she was one vendor that I grew up with as well. And the other one was the lady who was selling chi chong fan. She stayed in my block. And she would wear a very nice Chinese, I don't know whether you call it some food dress. I mean, it's like those blouse that has got a high collar and all that, but she would wear pants with it. And then she had a pole on her shoulder with... Uh, some, if some food and uh, several stools dangling on the other side. So she will just go house to house, tuck her, her so-called um, stall there. And then when you ask for chi chong fan, she'll take it out from a bowl and she'll just use her scissors and snip, snip, snip. I will still remember the, 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 the sound of the scissors. You know, and then after that, she had several bottles, and these bottles were FNN bottles. You know, those days the FNN drink, right? The edited drink. Their bottle shape was different from what it is now. And these FNN bottles will contain um, the sesame oil, the uh, hyacin sauce, and chili sauce. And then the cap of the FNN bottle will have holes punctured. Mm. And then she will just sort of sprinkle on a chicheng pan, which is served on a Kind of a banana leaf, no, not banana leaf. I cannot remember what leaf it was. What kind of leaf that people use for roja and all that as well. So she'll just put the chicheng fan inside, and then she had another another bottle with bigger holes, and that would have been a roasted sesame seeds. And she just sprinkle, 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 and she'll just put two this toothpick and then give it to us. I grew up with all that, so definitely I was always exposed to food, and I wanted food all the time. Do you feel like it's just your experiences or is it like in general, everyone from your generation, they were equally as exposed to food as you were? I think most people were exposed to food, but the thing is not everyone cares about what they eat. Not everyone uh, observes the little things in life. And you, know, you, you understand because each makeup of a person is different. Maybe someone was just looking to see your, your hairstyle or something like that. You know? Whereas I was more focused on food. And uh, and then there was a period when my father was jobless for a few years, few years. And during that period, food was very scarce. I have seven brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest. So uh, so we have to find food for everybody, right? And at that period, 
a lot of it was a depression period over in Singapore. Many people were jobless and all that. So during that period, the United Nations was giving out uh, food rations to all these families. And of course, my family uh, enjoyed the benefit as well because there are so many children in the family, right? And the food stuff that they gave were all um, so-called what we call European food. Uh, there was pasta, there was soya beans, um, there was whole wheat grains and all that, right? So, um, and my mom, she was never been exposed to non-Indian uh, ingredients apart from the Chinese ones and all that. So she didn't know what to do with pasta. She didn't know what to do with soya bean, you know. So then eventually, of course, with a bit of talking to the neighbors and all that, we realized that pasta is just another form of uh, noodle. So we started uh, boiling it in water, making me goreng. We never made pasta as an Italian, but we made me goreng with it. Uh, we made... Uh, Bubo, you know, bubo is like a sweet porridge, right? Yeah. So we would make a green bean porridge with pasta broken inside. And uh, we would make uh, upuma. Upuma is an Indian dish with semolina. Mm. But my mother would boil this and uh, we'll make an upuma with it. So we had a variation of the, the pasta, this, the spaghetti actually. And then the whole wheat was sent to the meal and then we have it of course we had it in chapati form we had it in tose form we made halwa out of it you know so and then we were given milk powder so we had gulab jamun with it and then we had jimpo jimpo with milk powder in it wow. so you know we had a lot of food even though my father was jobless yeah. And I was exposed to creating and thinking that a lot of things can be done as well I think these are all the reasons why I became interested in food. Mm, I think you really highlighted like the resourcefulness of that era because I, yeah. I think, you know, when you think about how Singaporean food kind of evolved, you realize that there is an emphasis on making use of things that might be cheaper or like more humble. Yes. I, I really like listening to all your stories because I think it's such a beautiful picture of Singapore. You know, just yes. like how when I was talking to Chef Damien, he talked about that um, cross-cultural exchanges as well when he was growing up. And mm. to me, it's like a very romantic picture for every generation. There are certain advantages or like certain beauties that are unique yes. to this generation. So what do you think are the advantages of being in this current generation? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, I, I enjoy, I mean, I've enjoyed the other world <laughs> uh, and I am currently enjoying the current world as well. I mean, uh, I, I, I like the social media part of life uh, because it, it draws me nearer to food as well because now I'm not only um, educating myself about the food of my neighbors and my friends and everyone in Singapore and Malaysia, but I can go as far as Iceland or anywhere to see what people are eating. And I can make friends and I can talk to them and ask them more details about what they eat. So I think it, it's a very uh, great time to live, uh, especially related to food as well. And then ingredients. What ingredients I thought I will never be able to get in front of me is now available as well because you can just order online and it can be shipped to you. Mm, yeah, that's the thing, you know, like when I first got to know you, I was so impressed by the m amount of effort and, you know, I mean, you are very interactive on your social media platform. Like you do Instagram lives with guests. Um, I, I recently watched one where you did this uh, Instagram interview with this mutton seller and I thought it was oh. really informative and very interesting. So 
was there a barrier for you when it came to technology? Because I know a lot of the, a lot of people from the older generation, like say my mom's generation or my grandmother's generation, they perceive this huge hurdle when it comes to using social media. So what was it like for you? Nothing. It just from I've always been a very forward-thinking person. So um, when the internet first came. Um, all I knew, I mean, I, I, I didn't know anything what, what an internet is at, at that period, right? And then when I was told there's something called internet, and then when you turn it on, you can see so many things and you can read so many things. And I was like trying to figure out what the hell is that, you know? And then, of course, finally, when we signed up for an internet plan and I realized that, oh my God, I can just uh, type something and then uh, something pop up and I can read about it. And so, and I, and I started reading and and started experimenting like trying to like challenge the internet to see really you you can give me so much information you know so i just google something like i would think that the internet may not know yeah. <laughs> and then and then you type and then there's a lot of pages and so many things where you delete and then i realized that nothing is impossible i mean so many things can be looked out for in the internet and then of course later then the phone the phone came and then there was whatsapp and i realized that Everything is now at their fingertips, and sometimes it even irritates me sometimes. Like, for example, these days when you conduct a cooking class, people keep their phone on the side, and when you're talking about some ingredients, and then they want to look out for it, and they will quickly Google in front of you, and they will read to you more information during the class. <laughs> so it's good and bad, because it's good because they're adding more value to the class. Yeah. It's bad because they like everybody has become a teacher now. Hmm. The internet has really democratized information. Like everyone information. has so much information at their fingertips. But I yeah. would like to know what you feel about technology in something as personal as, say, a cooking class. Because um, occasionally I work for a cooking school here in Dalesford. And I think uh, one of the biggest barriers for my boss to really embrace technology is that he's afraid that you will kind of compromise or you'll lose the human touch and that personal touch and connection when you use technology in your classes. So what is your take on that? I do not see uh, in, in that same line. I, I think it helps, helps a lot as well because first, number one, I mean, uh, for me, like social media, uh, internet, anything, it sort of draws more people towards you. Uh, and it's less time consuming compared to those days to reach out to people. So I think in that sense, it's good. But there are like one or two things that I don't like about the social media. And that would be like, for example, someone attends your class and then uh, they post the recipe that they learn from your class on their, on their blogs. And this is something that I don't like because you pay, I mean, people like me, we teach as part of our livelihood. I mean, this is how we earn our money. And then you suddenly put the recipe there. And when you ask them to take down the recipe, they'll just say things like, oh, I already paid for the class. The recipe is mine. Mm. You know? Yeah. So such things also happen. Uh, in the and then I think this is like uh, some ethics. Some people are unethical. I mean, but then you can't control them because it happens in a normal uh, situation when there's no internet as well. I mean, um, those days when we have no internet, we would advertise uh, for cooking classes in the newspapers. 
and then people would call you and because there was no no way for them to check what is your next week's class or anything so they just have to ask you right and so you have to be patient enough to be able to answer every question and the number of calls that come to you but these days you can just say please go to this site and every information is there so that's good and bad yeah yeah, you know when you were talking about the recipes, right, and how people kind of disrespect the person who came up with the recipes, I think it really reminded me of that incident many years ago when uh, I think Lana Chocolate Cake, they were yeah. um, trying to sell their recipe and people were balking at the amount that they were asking for because they were like, how, how can it be so expensive? It's just one recipe, but they don't see the amount of hard work and the cost incurred when you're testing and developing a recipe, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, I'll tell you a simple, uh, uh, not simple, it's just a little part of my life that is quite humorous and uh, something that at that time I was so angry about because um, I was teaching Putumayam in a cooking class and a guy rang me up to i mean this was the time when there was no internet or anything else just phone calls right so this this chinese gentleman rang me up and said that um he wants to learn putumayam but he can't attend my class because he's in ns and can i fix it for a sunday morning and i really didn't want to teach him but he kept on emphasizing at that time i was teaching classes at 30 dollars so it's I mean, that was many years ago, right? It was $30 for a cooking class. So he kept on saying that Sunday he wants to come and he don't mind paying more. And when he asked me how much do I charge, I was so naive and silly. I just told him $50. That means extra $20 to teach. And he was one-to-one. -one. So he came and he was a fantastic, enthusiastic student. He, he wrote down uh, notes and asked me a lot of questions and then finished. The following week, um, I advertised my the following week's cooking lesson and I saw another advertisement that someone says um, he is teaching hawkers how to make Purimayam and it's $500. Oh my god. Yeah and, and it was his phone number so I was like so upset I was angry I was I mean I don't know the, the feeling that I had because I, I just felt so silly that I charged him $50 and someone is actually charging $500 to learn and he package it as hawker style uh, put in my arm you know yeah. so I rang him up I didn't tell him who I am I disguised my voice I was just so angry at me and uh, I asked him what is this class about and he said oh I'm teaching hawkers how to make put so I asked him where did you learn how to make put he said oh I went to India last year oh my god so so you know and and i had this mind to actually pay 500 dollars and sit in front of him but after a while you know like after about a few hours my anger just subsided and and i was like talking about it constantly to my husband and my husband was just telling you're just being silly and wasting your time thinking about it because whoever learns from you he wants to make money in a different way it's his his ability so don't have to like sulk about it then i just thought you know i mean <laughs> what can i do about it yeah. So some people can, I mean, can market something for um, big money. I think these kind of experiences happen to everyone across every industry. And, you know, yeah. I think it's really hard to foresee and avoid such things. So, I mean, it's so unfortunate that it's happening to you. I mean, it happened to you. Yeah, but it was a long, long ago. But it's, such things still do happen. I mean, like people learn from your cooking and then they will take their recipe and they will start... 
I mean, these days, uh, especially with the COVID, right? I know a number of my students are using my recipes and doing small time um, sales, like from their house, like cooking and selling food and all that. It doesn't matter to me actually because I really like um, decided that okay, my focus is on teaching, and I'm going to teach, and I'm I'm a good teacher, so I will just be like that, and uh, I I'm not I can't become a millionaire by teaching. Mm-hmm. So, but I can be a millionaire if I start selling my recipes, right? But yeah. it's it's um it's not something that I'm thinking of yeah. <laughs> to right. be a millionaire at the moment. <laughs> I think it's really a fine line because I mean, at what at what point does a recipe stop being your own? Because first of all, I think recipes don't come out of a vacuum. That's the first thing. Right. And the second thing is that um like if people put their own spins on it. Like how, how much changes does it have to go through before they can call it their own? So I think these two points make it a very gray area for everyone to navigate. Yeah. Okay. So, so for example, let's say I have a recipe for say a fish curry. So this recipe is not from a book. It's the base is from say my mother, the base, the basic cooking, right? and the taste that I inherited since I was a child. So this is my base. And from that, the recipe will be modified to be better or to cut down on something. So several days of research is being done. Several days of R&D, as I call it, right? I mean, research and development. So even if it's my mother's fish curry recipe, if I want to start teaching it, it has to be done in such a way that it is marketable to, to across the board to every every race, right? And number two, it, I have to make sure that when someone goes home, I'm not going to teach her a pinch of this or a handful of this. So I need to measure, I need to do everything precisely. So when all the homework is done, the people come and attend the class and they go back with this recipe. So the recipe don't need any more modification unless they want to market it as just, then they probably want to add some coconut milk. I mean, there is more ways that you can modify the recipe. But then the thing is, it loses its originality Mm. along the way. I mean, this is what is happening to like laksa and everything because people started buying pre-packs, pre-mixes. So the original taste is is all gone. Mm. So on that same vein, do you feel like a lot of uh, local food has been has started to taste very different from the flavors that you remember in your childhood? Definitely. I mean, uh, I would say practically all food tastes different, including my cooking these days and what I used to cook before because. My vegetables have changed. The tastes have changed. Mm. The taste of meat and fish have changed. Oh, So a lot of things have changed. I mean, we would think that the fish is in the sea, so it's still the same taste. No, it has changed. How so? I find fish tasting... Uh, I mean, those days when, it, when I buy a fish that has been from the sea, right? Uh, a lot of it will be fresher mm. because it was more in the surrounding areas that the fish was caught. These days, the fish is coming from far away. I mean, frozen, you know. So in the course of being frozen, it, it also has got some salt, some solutions that has been added to preserve its life. So the taste distorts as well. So like, for example, chicken. 
uh, chicken was always bought live from the market. So, you know, we will feather it and bring it home and we'll cut it and we cook a curry and it's different taste from the ones that is now in the, in the market. It sits there for a long time and then you take it home. It doesn't have that glistening, um, uh, the shine of the freshness anymore. Yeah, and I guess for things like uh, chicken rice, I suppose like we don't even have things like kampong chicken anymore. Yeah, the real kampong chicken is not there. I mean, they are selling things called kampong chicken. But I heard that they put like turmeric powder and things like that to make it yeah, yellow. Yeah, 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 correct, to make it yellow. Because the real kampong chicken will have a yellowish tint. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, the fat is also slightly yellowish. But um, these days, yes, I know that it has been coloured. You can see. I mean, how can every chicken be of the same colour, you know? The chicken rice uh, is another thing. Because I started eating chicken rice when I was around 19 years old, right? And um, for me, as an Indian, it is not part of my cuisine. But it is something that, wow, it's Chinese food and chicken rice is one of the best, you know? And for, for that, at that period, it was sold at 80 cents per packet. And um, it will be boneless chicken. And the chicken rice sambal is just out of the world. Mm. and there will be sesame oil and it's so fragrant but these days right the chicken rice sambal is something that i would never even bother because everybody practically most of the market shops around the places that i go to they don't make their own sambal they buy pre pre-made ones central kitchen kind of thing but yeah central kitchen and then it's packed uh, and sold for anyone to that means any anytime you want to make chicken rice you can buy this sauce ready made wow. uh, for you to use yeah I always thought that the hawkers actually make their own. No, 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 not all, not all, 100%. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about Indian cooking because, you know, that is the area that I feel I know very little about. So, okay. I know there are different kinds of Indian food. Like, uh, broadly speaking, I suppose you could divide that into North Indian and South Indian cooking. So, from my yes. understanding, North Indian food is very heavy on dairy, like yogurt, like cream. And then South Indian tends to be more like focused on uh, vegetables and coconut. Is that right? Um, not all parts of India use coconut. I mean, like we use coconut, but certain certain places or other certain states in India, the southern states uh, use like, for example, Kerala, they, use, they are more heavy on uh, coconut. Uh, in Tamil Nadu, uh, not that heavy on coconut, but we use, we do use coconut. Um, but when you say South Indian cuisine is predominantly spicy, mm. there's a lot of chilies and pepper and a lot of different spices. And then um, quite a lot of people use uh, tamarind in different forms. So it can be the kind of pulp like tamarind that we use here, or it can be kokum, or it can be a dried black. Tamarind. So there are many versions of souring agents for Indian uh, cuisine. And then, of course, we use um, uh, what you call uh, a variety of whole spices along with um, powdered spices as well. Yeah. And I realized that there is no such thing as curry powder in India. And like apparently in India, curry is not even a word. Yeah, curry is something that the British started uh, coining you know like so it's a sauce mm. so when in, you know when you go to tamil nadu and you tell someone that you want to eat curry it means you want to eat meat oh meat so you know yeah it's like 
it's like meat curry is uh, it's actually meat in tamil oh. in tamil so you know it's a british who came out with all these words like call curry and we call it c u r r y when in indian in india when we say iniki curry akalama that means shall we cook curry it's not they are not talking about as a sauce they're talking about let's cook meat today oh what would be a word that people use to describe something like a curry colombo 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 is like sauce colombo right it's anam anam is sauce so these are the two words that people use like so that for, for example you say fish curry right in singapore and all that but in indian homes in tamil nadu they say mean colombo Oh, I've never heard Mean of fish. Word. Yeah, Kulambu. We Google K U L A M B U. And do we use that word in Singapore? Ah, uh, yeah, in a lot of families, people use. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so yeah. there's also another uh, category of Indian food that you can find in Singapore, and those are like the fusion dishes, right? Dishes that are found in Singapore but you can't find in India. So things like roti prata. It's not that you can't find roti prata. It's just that. It is um, there. Are, there are a lot of dishes that have sort of changed their uh, the original uh, taste and look when it came to Singapore. I mean, after people arrived in Singapore, they modified some dishes to suit the locals. For example, the um, nasi biryani. Hmm. Okay. The biryani in India and biryani in Singapore is totally different because in India, when they make a biryani. The biryani will not have will, the meat will not have a lot of gravy stuck to it. Mm. The rice will be very flavorful, and uh, the meat will be like either boiled or cooked with it. Whereas in Singapore, we we tend to like um, a biryani that has a mutton or chicken that has got a bit of sauce stuck to the to the meat, and then um, the roti prata. So the originally originally Kerala. From people from Kerala brought their recipe, and that was the Malaba Parota, as they call it. So the Malaba Parota actually uses less oil than the roti prata in Singapore, and it's fluffy, and it's usually served for breakfast with an egg curry. Oh, yeah, it's usually only served with an egg curry. It was never served with mutton curry and all that. But this mutton curry and all that now, when you go to India, you can find it throughout the day in the menu. But it. In homes, it used to be a breakfast dish with egg curry only. Hmm. But the prata that we have in Singapore in itself, it's quite different, right? I know that in India they have something called the prata. So prata is a non-Indian word for a flat bread, and the bread could be it's not a fluffy type like the roti prata. It is something like another version of a chapati. Hmm. Heavier. It's heavier. Whereas the the malaba prata is actually uh, just plain flour. Which is with a little bit of ghee and maybe a bit of condensed milk or sugar with it, and then it is flipped. Um, so the the pastry is basically thinned down. I mean the the dough is flattened until it's very thin, like paper, like something like a filo pastry, and then it's folded or coiled and then fried in uh, oil or ghee so that the outside is crispy and the inside is flaky, and then it is served with a curry in Singapore. So then again, this the 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 dough itself has changed, uh, evolved over the years in Singapore because uh, during my younger days, um, the the roti prata is always uh, made really very fluffy, 
soft and like really soft inside so you can actually pull layer by layer like how you like can eat like croissants or something you know you can pull layer by layer and the layers are so thin that you can just pull it up like like a tissue you know and then mix it with curry that's the way it, it used to be but these days the dough has become thicker because um, the flipping of the dough has become restricted uh, uh, mainly number one is because the area shop space is um, limited so the area where the, the the cook is given to flip his prata has become narrower so he can't flip his prata much yeah so it becomes uh, smaller smaller in uh, folds mm. so therefore not as fluffy as it used to be and then they used to make real curries i as i said i say real curry means every day the cooks were cooked a curry for the prata those days but these days it's not the same uh, for example um, a dish that goes along with parata is prata is uh, dalcha mm. i don't know whether you've heard this word yeah. dalcha is served with biryani as well right yes so dalcha is actually is dal and meat cooked together usually mutton ribs cooked together with vegetables right but in the shops these days their dalcha is just a bit of dal and meat curry powder and so you smell this raw curry powder it doesn't have the meat taste so to simulate the meat taste they just probably put some msg inside so that you get this taste of a umami oh, i see so things have changed i mean the the prata taste itself have changed the nasi biryani has changed mm. um the taste of putumayam has changed putumayam is such a basic recipe it's only rice uh, water salt it's such a simple thing but even that people have changed it because uh, when you just make purumayam uh, the traditional way you cannot keep it very long it because it's rice based so after a while it will, will turn rancid you know because rice is has got sugar in it so it will ferment but uh, because they have to do hundreds and thousands of purumayam uh, for as a business they started making this in factories and then in the factories definitely they are adding some preservatives uh, to the dough and also they've added besides rice something else so that it will be a bit shiny and uh, it will not break very easily so mm. the taste of the brumayam have changed as well growing up right i did not eat the same chendol as what they are selling these days mm. it was totally different it was rice and um, sago vermicelli uh, made with a muruku press. Wow. Shocked once, right? Yeah. And with, of course, it was made with pandan juice. And the whole bowl of uh, chendol will have the green worms. They were softer in texture and it will be coconut milk and it will be gula melaka and it will have crushed ice. But the whole bowl will only be the chendol worms. And they were only sold by Indian people. It was Singapore, it was Malaysia, everywhere. They, it was the Indians who were selling it. Wow, I can totally imagine how, you know, the Muruku press can be used for something like that. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I, I make my chendol the Muruku press in the easiest instead of wasting time. Nowadays, the chendol is made using like kind of like a, col I wouldn't say a colander, but kind of like a grater, right? Where you can yeah, like grater, yeah, grater. Yeah, grater. Yeah. But we use Muruku press. But then, you know, to think about it, like why were this? Why were the Indians selling it? Then I, I can only think of one reason because in India they have the faluda. Hmm. 
Paluda is an Indian dessert which is like a vermicelli. It's like a chendol but a thinner version, right? And then they will have rose water and all the sort. So I, I believe that the Indians who came to Singapore to work, they need to do something like a faluda, but then to suit the local taste. So instead of putting it in milk, they put it in coconut milk. Instead of using jaggery, they use gula melaka. Wow, that's amazing. I first heard of Faluda when, you know, I was working on the planner and we have a Parsi contributor. So we, okay. she was talking about um, Faluda, you know, as a dessert that she would have on Parsi New Year. And mm. so, you know, it's really beautiful to really trace the connections from yeah. India to, to Persia to Singapore. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm. So would you say that the quality of food that you now find in Singapore is poorer than what you used to get, given that now people are kind of taking shortcuts, adding MSG to kind of mask the lack of flavor? Definitely. Things have changed a lot because now uh, um, there's, a, there's a lot of people who are inventing uh, uh, stuff that would shorten cooking methods and all that. So, you know, you want to make a mushroom soup, you go and buy mushroom powder. <laughs> you want to have a soup that tastes of mushroom stock, then you got mushroom stock to, to add on. So now they have all this, but those things people make a stock, they boil a stock for 24 hours and all that. But now they want to cut down on fuel costs and everything and they just buy uh, those powdered stuff to be used. Mm. And so does that make you feel resigned as a person who loves food? And is that why you are so passionate about sharing this knowledge of how to cook things from scratch? Honestly, I'm not actually um, bothered about uh, whether people really want to learn from me because they want to eat properly. I'm more interested in... My duty is to share with people what I know and the way it should be eaten, right? Now, how are you going to... Uh, whether you're going to do the same or whether you're going to be lazy and not cook it and make, do a shortcut of my recipe, it's your problem. Because I realize that many people do that, even in cooking classes, when you teach them the correct way, right? As in like, okay, you put all this, you dry roast over low fire, and then they will ask me questions like, can I use a thermomix? Can I use pressure cooker? You, you understand? Yeah. It's different. The taste will be different. Mm. Or like, if you add a little bit more oil, they will say, oh, can I use that non-stick pan? Mm. So, if you have all these gadgets um, that sort of help you with your life, your daily life, some of these gadgets doesn't uh, make your food taste better. It only shortens the speed of work. Mm. So, what is your sentiment or your feeling when it comes to uh, these kind of comments? Does it make you feel very resigned? Because... I know that there are people in two camps. So some people believe that, no, heritage food should taste this way. And, you know, people should try to replicate the same flavors using very traditional methods, even though it takes longer. Whereas there's another group of people that say that we have to evolve Singaporean food to fit our busy lifestyles. And, you know, if the traditional methods put people off, then we should come to a compromise. Okay, I believe that Instead of just uh, saying I'm talking even before trying, right? People should try once in their lifetime the original traditional method of cooking something. And then they know the, the, the actual taste, how it should be. And then they decide how they want to modify. Because you can also modify a dish because you don't want it to be so spicy, hot. Or you can modify a dish because you don't like cardamoms because your family, nobody likes that. So you can modify that. But 
you should try at least once to go through the whole process and then decide what you want to do with uh, with your um, whether you want to use your new age gadgets or whether you want to use your premix or but at least you have tried and you have, can talk about it but if you have not tried doing it don't shun it you know don't uh, don't say oh i think there's a shortcut method i rather follow that you know Mm-hmm. And speaking of modifications, you know, I follow you on Instagram and I've been seeing all the wonderful Tose experiments with okay. whole grain flowers. And I remember uh-huh. you telling me that a lot of Indians tend to be diabetic because of the high consumption of rice in their diet. So can you tell me a little bit about why you started um, tweaking all these traditional recipes? Okay, so then, um, for example, right, Tose is done with rice. Um, rice and burat dal and some fenugreek and all that. So for years, I, I enjoy I enjoy the tosi very much. But then uh, as, as I grew older, as I became more involved in like working with the health promotion board and all that, right? Then I, I mean, and also I realized that my family themselves, right? For example, my mother is, uh, is a, my mother is diabetic. Okay, she became diabetic when she was in her 50s. And so, um, Two of my brothers, and one of my brothers and two of my sisters, they are all diabetic. And my husband is diabetic as well. So then when I, when I looked at it, um, I was wondering, they are all not, I mean, at least I can say I'm on the plum side. They are all very lean people. My husband is very lean. He exercises like crazy and all that. But what I realized is all of them, right, they don't snack. They do not snack. They don't go for desserts. But they eat a very whole uh, main meal that means lunch dinner it's a lot mm. and the a lot is the rice that fill up their stomach yeah and this is not like just my family members i realized that it is when i go to an indian restaurant i see um, the waiter putting like five portions of rice in one person's table for them to eat whereas i would have in my diet right it's always been like three tablespoons of rice it's not like I cut down. It's just that I never wanted rice. I wanted my vegetables more than my rice, my kabo. Mm. So uh, I grew up like that. But then I realized that many people grew up eating more rice because the parents always tell them, eat more rice. Oh, that's you need true. To please your, you need to please your mother because if you don't eat, that means your mother's food is not nice. You need to please your relatives because you're visiting someone and if you don't finish the rice, they'll be offended. So people have been like always eating rice. And, I, and in India, it's the same because in Indian cuisine, it's just not one course when they sit down. For example, a vegetarian meal, right? First, they will have a big mountain of rice. Um, and then they will start off with plain dal, which have no vegetables, nothing. And this is supposed to like sort of like, uh, um, it's an introduction to your empty stomach. Like, don't shock your stomach, right? So it's very light and mild. And then after that, you add your sambar, which is your like uh, vegetable and quite heavy. And then you have all the side dishes. And when you finish all this, then you eat rasam, hmm. which is a spicy kind of soup. And when you finish all that, you have yogurt to alkalize, alkaline, alkaline. What do you call it? Alkanal rice. I think. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole system. And so that, you know, the, the, the good bacteria from the yogurt will go and break down all the food inside. So then, you know, to eat all these various uh, 
uh, course, right? You need to have rice. Mm -hmm. So they will finish all the rice. And when you eat all this rice, then what happens? You become lethargic, you become tired, and then you may just go and lie down or sit down. And then you put on weight and then history repeats. You become obese and then you become diabetic, you know. So I decided that tose is something people like to eat. But whether a tose is made with whole grain, uh, whether it's made with um, millet or not, it doesn't matter because traditionally my forefathers were using millet. They were not using rice to make their tosis. Mm. They were all people who farmed millets first, then rice came in. Yeah. So millet tose is very healthy because it's low glycemic and the forefathers were never that they were never diabetic. That's very interesting because you know when I started cooking more Indian recipes from uh, Indian cookbooks, there was one called yeah. India the cookbook by Pushpent. And yeah, I know this person. Yeah, there are a lot of recipes for uh, the bread component to the dish. So things like puri, yeah. like uh, your, I think, what you call batura, right? Batura. Yeah, and it's always made with whole grain. So I was very excited because, you know, for the first time, I was exposed to things like maybe using spelt flour or like using yeah. rice flour. And it became a lot healthier because of the fiber, you know? Yes, because, you know, like, in India, actually, they have like uh, rice museums mm. and millet museums where they stock all these seeds uh, from ancient uh, heritage seeds, right? And uh, people just didn't bother about it because they, they, they are very current eating processed rice and all that. But now, a lot of people has, have become uh, more uh, concerned about their health and about their heritage. Even in India, they have started bringing down all those seeds and the, and the young farmers are beginning to farm all these heritage millets and all that. So a lot of millets are being used in India now and they're like, everybody is like now want to go into millets and the sub rather than just sticking to uh, the normal white rice already. So, and I've tried with, because for me, grains doesn't, for me, grains or any ingredient, right? Only when I'm teaching a lesson, I'll say Indians use this most of the time. But otherwise, for me, an Indian, Indian is for all human beings to use. Mm. So it doesn't matter whether it's millet or buckwheat or rye. I have tried everything and I enjoy my tosi. I mean, basically, the tosi's um, base is what? Fermentation. Yeah. It needs to be fermented and then it, you need to make it into a... A pancake, thin pancake, right? Mm. So, and I'm able to make most of it and they're all very healthy and I'm pleased with it. Oh, I love that. You know, I've been trying to eat healthier, you know, just for mm. my health. And I found it very, very difficult to um, get away from eating white rice. Because, you know, like you said, it's so much, so ingrained into our culture, you know. When I was growing mm. up, white rice was on the table many meals and I would yeah. always top up my bowl after I finished yeah. one bowl. Yeah. It's so normal for me to eat maybe two or three bowls when I was growing up. I remember when I first um, met my husband's family and went over for dinner. His mom was shocked at how many bowls of rice I was eating. And I didn't know at that point that it was an unhealthy thing because I feel that our education in schools is very limited and not very updated. So you always yeah. knew that desserts were bad for you, but you didn't know that refined carbohydrates like bread or like rice yeah. were bad. 
And recently I was reading this article on the Straits Times. So they were talking about how a lot of Singaporeans who are very health conscious would opt for, say, maybe cooking brown rice when they're eating chicken rice. Does that mean that we mm. lose our heritage? Does that mean we lose our culture? So what do you feel? Okay, so then having said that, I, even though I'm so passionate about like making sure that people know what's their original dish, to, to go to change your diet for your, for your own health is perfectly alright because uh, you are compromising on the original taste, yes, but at least you know what was the original taste. Hmm. My take is you must know your original taste. I mean, you must know it first before you modify it. Uh, if you don't know anything, then don't just, I mean, don't just take someone's recipe, um, which is, let's say I do a recipe with uh, uh, white rice and whatever, whatever, and then someone takes the recipe and says, oh, that's very unhealthy. Uh, I'm going to modify it to brown rice. So then, then after that, don't complain about the taste. Because yeah. sometimes when you change, uh, taste will also change. But if you know the original dish, how it tastes, right? When you make a new dish with new ingredients, you may be able to modify it to almost taste like the other one. If you don't know that, how are you going to know that this is the way it should be? Mm. That's very because a lot of people don't know how how certain things are supposed to taste like. Mm. Yeah. They just buy something and eat and think this is the way it should taste and then they'll decide, oh, I don't like it or I like it, you know. So, but they don't know the original taste. Yeah. And I feel that India has a lot to teach us when it comes to eating healthily. Because when I first started wanting to reduce my meat intake and increase my, the amounts of like vegetables and grains I was eating, my friend who has been to India a few times, she told me, you know, Pam, just start cooking more Indian food, like the real uh, yeah. Indian food that you find in India where uh, it's very balanced. Like you said, you know, yeah. there's prasam, there's a samba, there's like a yeah. And so it's like many small uh, dishes that comprise a meal. In that sense, I feel yeah. that it's very Japanese where you have many, many small things rather than oh, yes. having like a big plate of rice and a big plate of chicken, for example. I'm always impressed by one thing which I would always compare with the Indians. For example, when you, when you uh, eat or when you go to a Western restaurant, the main course you will choose will be like one, right? Uh, the menu itself will have chicken, will have uh, prawn, will have, and then you just choose one main course. Yeah. You will not choose few things, right? But when you go to a Chinese restaurant, Indian restaurant, you mix your sotong, your prawn dish, everything comes to the table. Yeah. It's the same with the Indian restaurants in Singapore. Everything comes to the table. I mean, you can your choice to order your fish cutlet, then your sotong masala, whatever, and then you eat. Now, that is not the way people used to eat before. Hmm. They would only eat one main, as in like one protein, right? Like a, the bigger protein, right? So that digestion and everything will be easy. Now, if you are taking several different types of uh, proteins in your diet in the form of meat, you got, your stomach is going to suffer a lot. Hmm. And this is one reason why you constantly listen and you hear people saying, today I'm not, my stomach is bloated. Today I'm not very well. Today I, the doctors say I've got uh, acid reflux. So you hear a lot of these stomach-related problems these days from people. Or oh, I had food poisoning, you know. <laughs> so, and these things you don't hear, I did not hear when I was young. 
Mm. I have never ever suffered touch wood. I've never ever suffered from stomach related problem because of eating food, you know? Yeah. I think for me when I grew up, my mom always told me or like told her friends that I have a very weak stomach. Like every time we go out to eat food at a restaurant, I would come back with a stomach ache like two hours after. Um, and then when I grew older, I realized that I had constipation problems. And, you know, through research and really reading up about how important your gut is for your general health. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't know that it was a serious problem. I thought it was genetic, you know. I didn't know that yeah. I wasn't consuming enough fiber. I, I didn't know that my meat was too heavily skewed towards refined yeah. carbohydrates and meat. So do you feel like in terms of education, there is more that could be done in Singapore? Definitely. I think food combination is so important. The correct combination of food is so important. And this is something that I learned from um, the Indian diet, the, the, the way it should be the traditional Indian diet. Right? That's why the Indians have always been calling Indian food as uh, food is medicine. That's our Indian slogan, food is medicine. Because when they plan the menu, uh, the menu for each day, right? There's all components of taste. Uh, for example, um, I may have said this before, but like for the Indians, we have six tastes. Mm. Right? The, 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 com compared to the five tastes that everybody talk about, our six tastes is astringent. Yeah. So astringent is something that you get from like tannin, uh, um, underripe banana, you know, that kind of taste that comes in mouth. Now, so we, when we cook, we make sure that we have these five tastes. That means we include vegetables or anything that have got all these five combinations for that day's meal. Mm -hmm. And then we will also make sure that uh, you have a balance of acidity and alkalinity. And you know, even when we serve on a banana leaf, right, food, right, the food is also sec. I mean, they are very, very, uh, very small um, things that people never notice, but it's a big thing in a, in a meal because all the salty and uh, overly acidic food will be always put on the left hand side because people don't eat with the left hand side, and all the um, the healthier vegetables and dishes, right, which is alkaline will be put on the right hand side so people will tend to somehow use their right hand to eat and they'll take the best things only oh. and then they'll reach out for the acidic stuff on the left which is like far away <laughs> so so the the plan has been done there by the by, by our ancestors already That's but people don't know so <laughs> is it um so from what you're saying it's better to eat alkaline foods rather than acidic yes Definitely. Because you see, um, when, when a child is born, right, the whole body is alkaline. Mm. As a child is growing more and uh, bigger and bigger, and then we start eating different, different foods, right? Then different kind of acidity comes into our body. We come to a point when, then when we become old, our body is more acid than alkaline. So mm. if you change your diet to more alkaline, you actually look younger, stay younger, and you feel more energetic. No wonder you look Less so diseases will come to you. Yeah, no wonder you look so good. Do you mind if I ask you how old you are? I'm 65. Oh my God. <laughs> Everything looks so good. I can't take it. I understand that you have a cookbook on these kind of natural remedies coming up. So yes. does it have all the information in it? This book, which is called My, my Mother's Kitchen Pharmacy, uh, is actually a book about 
ingredients that the Indians uh, have used for medicinal purposes, for the purpose of medicine, but not to eat as a medicine. But like I said, food is medicine, right? So they cook that particular dish so that uh, you will be feeling better or you recover from certain illnesses, you know? So it, I have about 90 over ingredients like that. Some ingredients are very rare in Singapore. They're only seasonal as in like they may be imported from India. And even in India, it's maybe seasonal. But people eat those things to keep themselves warm or to, uh, to get rid of skin problems or something like that. So I chose all those ingredients and uh, this book will have a write-up and research about these ingredients and how and why the Indians use this and why they cook it this way with that particular uh, ingredient and then uh, there will be one or two recipes with it yeah i really think that this philosophy of food being medicine is so intrinsic to the indian community i remember how when i was going to the wet markets for to write the book, mm -hmm. the book uh -huh. um, i was buying things like moringa and snake god and the Indian seller would say, oh, you know how to cook this? And then he starts like sharing about all the healthful properties. Yeah. And he's like so passionate about it, you know. And I was like, whoa, yeah. is this like really common? Like, I mean, do, is it really common for all Indians to kind of know from their mothers and their grandmothers about yeah. all these healthful things? Okay, since I'm in my 60s, so my, my mother is in her 80s. So... She, she has really acquired that knowledge from her mother, right? So she passed that to me. A person who is in her 60s can impart this knowledge that she learned from her mother to her daughter. Now that daughter, right, maybe who is in her 40s, may just take a few of those important facts and pass it to her, her daughter who may be in her 20s or um, just a teenager now by the time the child become a teenager she will just think that they're all talking rubbish and may not even bother about it and that's all it dies mm. so i just wanted to make sure that it doesn't die it has to be documented into a book yeah i think that's so important because one of the things that i felt very strongly about when i uh, entered the wet markets was this idea of indigenous knowledge knowledge that is passed down from generation to generation through the word of mouth that will be lost you know if places yeah. like that do not exist or if people don't you know uh really have maybe a close relationship with their with their moms or maybe with their yeah. grandmothers what what do you feel are some of the ways that we can regain this kind of knowledge you know like some of the things that you are doing is very good like get some old aunties to come about your social media talk about the food or cook and show uh, now that's that's something that's very good uh we can archive people who are dying and going off i'm <laughs> sorry to say that but it's like yeah people like me i mean maybe live for another 15 years or i mean 20 years or so but you know even before I become senile and everything, people should document me. Yeah, so I that at least, agree. You are such yeah, a pleasure. <laughs> I am doing it now. <laughs> yeah, so so then you, you can keep all this documented, right? I mean, uh, for the future, because, you know, they said fashion will always come back. Yeah. So a lot of things will always come back. So there'll be a day when everybody wants to go back to eating uh, traditional food and this and that. And then everybody will be going to all this archive and digging out. And yeah, so you just keep this. Um, we just stay positive and hope that one day people will learn from all this. Yeah, that's it. We just mm -hmm. keep going. 
Yeah, I think you are such an inspiration for everything yeah, you. you're doing for <laughs> Singaporean food. Like, honestly, you have so many cookbooks. How many have you written so far? I have authored and co-authored 23 books already. Oh my God, that's amazing. Oh my God, how do you find all this energy and drive at your age to do all these things? I find it so Because I have, I have not aged. Yes, oh my god, I look at you and I feel like I'm talking to someone in your home. It's not something. I, it's, it's nothing, it's just a number. I mean, the body parts may age and you may see signs of that. But the most important thing is keep going, keep doing what you want to do and you will never think that you're getting old. Oh, I'm so inspired just listening to you talk. <laughs> really, you are a legend. Thank you, thank you. <laughs>